This is an ABC podcast. In the middle of one of the United States' greatest concrete jungles, you'd think there'd be no space for the wonders of the natural world. But there's a place here where gorillas, snow leopards, lemurs and thousands of other creatures live. And a place that's home to an organisation which believes zoos can be real forces for conservation. Hello. That was the voice of Lynn Malcolm, recently retired from the ABC, and you're listening to Off Track. I'm Anne Jones. This episode is from The Vault. It was a BBC-ABC co-production about zoos, and it was made about 11 years ago. It explores some of the themes that we've been discussing on the show in the last couple of episodes. Young people, old people, no matter what clique you're in, everybody seems to love the zoo. You feel like you're in the forest. Yep, the Lynn Malcolm like is going to the zoo, and although the program is just over a decade old, there's still a lot of food for thought here. Hi, could I have one adult ticket to the Gronk Zoo, please? Thank you. Enjoy. Great, thanks very much. The Bronx Zoo spreads across 100 hectares of parkland, surrounded by one of New York City's toughest neighbourhoods. It's the largest of five zoos and aquaria in the city, run by the Wildlife Conservation Society, or WCS. Stephen Sanderson is the society's chief executive officer. We began in the 1890s with three purposes in our charter. One is to create and maintain a great zoological garden, as they used to say in those days. A second was to educate the public about the importance of the natural world and wildlife. And the third was to engage in conservation at a time when uh, particularly North American animals were in decline. And so we've always been in conservation. We are deployed around the world. We have over a thousand people at work in New York City in five facilities. And we receive over four million people a year, 4.3 million people. And so we have a great opportunity to educate them. We have 3,000 people overseas in 65 countries who are engaged with these very animals in conservation, in protected areas management, in species conservation, in science, in, in global health surveillance around the world. We'll come to the efforts an organisation like the Bronx Zoo can make to conservation in the wild later. But zoo advocates believe that a zoo can also promote the conservation cause in the way they house and display their animals. It's all about more sophisticated design of the exhibits, showing animals in rich living replicas of their natural ecosystems, rather than lining them up out of context according to their classification. I'm Sue Chin, I'm the Vice President of Planning and Design and Chief Architect for the Wildlife Conservation Society. So we're standing in front of the Lion House, which originally opened in 1903, and it's a classical Beaux-Arts structure with beautiful limestone carvings of animals, mostly big cats, very traditional architecture. And when it opened in 1903, it was state-of-the-art in terms of exhibiting big cats. But over the years, we've discovered that there are greater needs for big cats in terms of the, the husbandry needs, and so it was no longer appropriate to house them. So it was very important for us to 
reopen this building as a state-of-the-art exhibit for today and for the future. And we see the sign up here, Madagascar, and that's where we're going now. Absolutely. We want to transport our visitors to Madagascar, which is an amazingly rich and diverse island off the coast of Africa. 85% of Madagascar's animal species are found nowhere else in the world, but the island's forests are fast disappearing because of logging and agriculture. This latest of Bronx Zoo's major exhibits is designed to educate visitors and to inspire them to care that Madagascar's unique biodiversity is in peril. In our goal of trying to introduce people to the richness and diversity of Madagascar, it was important for us to think about the places that we could transport people to because you can put up graphics and you can show animals, but we really want to connect people to the places and the animals, and we do that through immersion. We talk about immersing people in these places because it's, you know, how many New Yorkers are actually going to ever get a chance to go to Madagascar? Here's an opportunity for, for them to do that and for us to provide that for them. You know, we feel that it's really important to make that personal connection with the animals and also the place so people get a sense of the value and therefore inspire to care about these places and conserve them. So visitors walk through a dimly lit cave with an underground river a large aquarium that's home to Nile crocodiles and endangered Madagascan fish species. Stalactites hang overhead and the sound of dripping water adds to the feeling you're deep underground. Then it's out into another of the island's special ecosystems, a slice of the spiny forest the size of a tennis court. It's landscaped with rocks and gullies and planted with characteristic living trees and plants. Amid all this, tortoises crawl, birds flit, and Madagascar's unique primates, the lemurs, leap onto strategically placed perches. These large pieces of what we call deadfall have been created, creating places where animals can sit, where they feel comfortable, where the guests can see them. And what we can see down here? We can see a ring-tailed lemur who's happily perched on one of those pieces of deadfall. Very striking-looking animals, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, they're, they're white and gray, but they have black and white tails that are ring. And we have a group of females in here, a large group of females. We also have a family of collared lemurs. You can see some others over here perched on the ledge, very close to visitors. Mm -hmm. There's no barrier here between the visitor and the lemurs themselves, no. except for this glass handrail. They also love the plants in here, and of course, you know, the plants are here to create a sense of environment, but they're also great enrichment for the animals because they graze on a lot of them. They pull leaves off and eat them, and, you know, our horticulturalists, you know, are horrified sometimes when they see that, but it's part of what we do. So that's the sort of balance of how design can address the needs of the animals and the needs of the visitor. So just sp speaking more broadly about the philosophy behind designing zoo exhibits, what do you think is the potential in the future for using sort of new technologies and new ways of improving on exhibits? In my mind, there is really no way to replace this experience, this up-close, personal, eye-to-eye -eye experience with a live animal. And I think that technology can be used in ways to supplement that, to help get your message across. So we've been thinking a lot about people's personal digital devices, such as smartphones and so on, and how maybe we can use that in a way to get messaging across. But every zoo really needs the experience of seeing animals up close because unless you care, you know, unless you're really inspired, fall in love with what you see in front of you, you're not going to really want to be inspired to action. <laughs> yeah.
The place in the Bronx Zoo where emotions are most intense is the Congo Gorilla Forest Exhibit. It's a huge reconstruction of various habitats of the Central African jungle. My guide is the WCS's Chief Conservation Officer, John Robinson. Right, we've come right up close now and we're looking out this very broad window into basically a gorilla habitat and I can see seven, eight gorillas all sitting around. Living their lives. This is this great semicircular glass. One of the wonderful things about this part of the exhibit is that there is so much interaction between people and gorillas. And quite frequently, a gorilla will put his hand on the glass and a person will put his or her hand on the glass on exactly the side, and there is this communication which happens, yeah. which is absolutely priceless. So it's a, it's a real it's a communication that you, you can't deny. I mean, the look on some of these gorillas' faces is quite awe-inspiring, I think because you really are wondering what is going on inside their heads. Yes, I'm sure it's quite similar to what's going on inside our heads. See that gorilla then? It, it was waving. Oh, you are? Yeah, we saw him before. Look, it's waving. Look at the gorilla. Do you wonder what they're thinking? I do. They must, I mean, have a ball laughing at us. Because <laughs> look at these, these humans. Right? This, this is a group of females. I don't see the uh, silverback male. The exhibit, this area, looks very similar to an area, the kind of habitat where these animals live. You have low vegetation, scattered trees. And if they don't want to interact, and sometimes a gorilla won't want to interact with people, they can just disappear into the vegetation of the back. Um, but most frequently, they like to come down really close because they're kind of interested in what we're doing. How important do you think it is for the, the city of New York to have a place like oh this? Oh, my God. Gotham City? So important. You can explain to kids about antelope and bison and gorillas, but they're ever going to see one? really, especially the inner city kids. I mean, you can watch them on TV all you want, but you're not going to get a feel for their essence, what they are, what they're about, what they like. Gorillas are powerful ambassadors for conservation because we see them as individuals. They interact with us as individuals. We empathize with them, and you begin to feel that it is absolutely important that we protect these species. You know, I come to the zoo quite often, and I think we're very aware of the gorilla's plight because we're destroying forests and hunting, poaching. It's more about reminding yourself why we need to save them. It's a very, very powerful image. That was an image that was taken by the photographer Carl Amon, um, and that's actually a gorilla head um, in a bowl. The gorilla in the picture is a victim of the bushmeat trade. Before visitors reach their close encounter with the great apes, they're confronted, if they choose to stop and look, with images and information detailing the various threats to gorillas. Getting visitors to absorb the information the zoo displays isn't easy. Quite a few visitors I spoke to had walked straight past the captions, images and graphics. Back at Madagascar, Sue Chin shows me the zoo's latest audio-visual attempt to penetrate the public consciousness. Between the cave and spiny forest, you enter a room with circular walls on which dramatic and unmissable video images get projected. 
So you feel like you're surrounded by the imagery, by the footage, and that it's also going on around you. So right now what we're looking at is sort of a serene picture of the forest. And, you know, we sort of describe three major threats. One is deforestation, another is urbanization, the other one is slash and burn farming. So in a couple of seconds, one of those threats will sweep across this serene landscape and indicate that there is a threat. And also then images will show up to show how we, WCS, are working in Madagascar to mitigate those threats. Also, punctuating the space are these live animal exhibits where people can oh, there's a, see a some of the red jewels. Frog just leaping in larger than life across there in front of us. Isn't that amazing? amazing? <laughs> <laughs> now that frog is actually in that exhibit over there, but because you know they're not always um, seen or active, and we wanted them to be sort of key players in helping people understand um, Madagascar and its threats, we have them leaping across in larger than life images across the screen. You hear sounds of axes hitting trees, and here's a, a tree that's just sort of falling. Yes, and the animals are scattering. The animals are scattering, and then you have this sort of devastated, deforested landscape across all three screens. Yeah. And it says every month over 10 million trees are cut down in Madagascar. And there's the frog just peeping out there, looking not looking sad. terribly happy. <laughs> Yes, we are playing on your emotion, and I think that's part of it. Um, we also were sort of afraid that this might overtake the live animal collection, so we did a lot of testing ahead of time. And it turns out that most people, when they come in here, will really focus on the live animals, mm. but are getting the messages here together, WCS and the Malagasy people protecting forests and growing hope. And so even though they not, may not be standing here watching the film, that they might be looking at these animals, our evaluation and testing shows that they are still getting these messages. I'm Lynn Malcolm, and we're in New York City at the Bronx Zoo. Some of the animals here have become more than inspirational ambassadors for their species. They've also been used in scientific research to directly protect their threatened counterparts in the wild. Oh, do you hear that noise in the back? Yes, it sounded like a bird. That's, That's the dog. Is it like a chirping sound? It is. Most unexpected. That's great. <laughs> Bob Cook, who's in charge of all the Wildlife Conservation Society zoos. He's introducing me to the Bronx's pack of African wild dogs. Well, and they're all going after something, you see? And also, there's some behaviors going on there. You notice the animal laying down? These are actually submissive hierarchies, not dominance hierarchies, as you see in many animals. Oh. So the, the uh, lower animals will actually almost beg. Yeah, you can so see there, that. So there's very little aggression. It's mostly the animals getting down on their forelimbs and being submissive. Yeah. So a very different relationship very different. between the animals compared to some other species. The white, black and brown mottled canines used to be common across Africa. Now they're extremely rare and heading for extinction because of competition for land with farmers and the spread of disease. These animals living in close proximity to human and their animals means that they are contracting the diseases that domestic dogs will get. So things like canine distemper or rabies. So what, what are you actually doing here at Bronx Zoo with the African dogs? Managing these animals in a zoological environment where we are required to have a preventive medicine program and to vaccinate them means that we will handle them repeatedly over their months of growth. So in the last few years, we've had 43 offspring 
from our wild dog group. And that has enabled us to create a study of vaccines in these animals. For instance, the rabies vaccine study where we use different dosages, different compositions. We determine what the protective dose was so that we could then transfer this information to wild settings where it's much more difficult to handle animals and have a relatively high assurance that the vaccine will work. And that is really the unique role that zoos in modern times now play. More generally, many zoos around the world have been contributing basic physiological and health information to a global database about the thousands of different animal species in their care. Bob Cook says this is becoming increasingly important in understanding what's happening to the wild populations. Zoos and aquariums working together to determine with changing environments, with stresses on the animals, whether they are healthy or not. This is a huge and significant undertaking that now has huge payoffs now as we confront animals in limited habitats in the wild that are losing numbers or suffering from disease, that we have a comparison to say, aha, this disease is affecting the liver because we can look at our databases. And there's nothing like this anywhere in the world. It really is exciting to see the zoo's snow leopards. They're kept in a landscaped enclosure, planted like the Himalayan terrain, where these highly threatened cats just cling on to existence. They've been persecuted by fur hunters, and there's only 5,000 left in the wild. The latest snow leopard to come to the Bronx is an orphaned cub called Leo from Pakistan. Bronx Zoo director Jim Breheny points him out to me. They're actually a, a very beautiful animal. They're, they're like a pale beigey colour, quite fluffy looking, and they do have relatively random dark spots. That's correct, and those spots help break up the uh, outline of the animal so it really can kind of fade into the background and very hard to pick out, especially from a distance. Oh, here comes, here, he comes. here comes Leo chasing a bird or something. <laughs> yeah, and see, that's the great thing about, about these exhibits. They allow the animals to do natural behaviors and provides all kinds of stimulus. These leopards are part of the zoo's captive breeding program. What's the role of a program like this? The breeding program in the Bronx Zoo and zoos throughout the world and, and North America is, is particularly important because it allows us to maintain genetically diverse viable populations of these animals in zoos for people to see. Our snow leopard breeding program here at the Bronx Zoo is the most successful. And over the years we've produced over 75 cubs that we've sent to 30 zoos in this country and seven other countries around the world. It's a great model for a successful breeding program. And so what's the overall philosophy of having the captive breeding program here? Are you hoping to reintroduce them back into the wild? I think the, the goal of any propagation program in zoos is to always to keep that possibility alive. But the reality of it is, especially with carnivores, it is extremely difficult to reintroduce animals into the wild because they basically have to be taught to hunt. And in addition to the logistical difficulty of teaching animals to hunt, 
even in remote areas where these guys live, there's always areas where people and animals come into conflict. And unfortunately, what we find is when animals and, and humans compete for limited resources, animals come out on the, the losing end of the bargain. So it's, it's a difficult situation. So let's imagine that snow leopards do become completely extinct in the wild. The captive bred ones can't be released because they wouldn't survive. So what's the conservation point of keeping and breeding a species if it only has a future inside zoos? Bob Cook. Right, and I do ask myself that question. If there are situations where there is no hope for an animal in the wild, will they truly be wild animals anymore? And that's why the Wildlife Conservation Society has created a new paradigm. We are a conservation organization and we're a zoological organization. And we put those things together and we provide a unique set of skills in order to conserve animals throughout their potential range and also to have backup populations, if you will, of animals in these exhibit areas where we can ensure a future for them. The snow leopards exhibit. I came across a group of visitors, local students, who were wrestling with the uneasiness many feel about the whole idea of animals in captivity. I think you instantly think about whether or not the animal's happy. Yeah. Is it good in there? Yeah. Is he okay? Because we were just talking about that with the polar bear. Is he is he miserable being here, or is is it nicer than if he was out on his own hunting? His That's own what I instantly think about. And so what conclusion have you come to? How do you feel about the animals in this zoo? I, I really don't know. I have no I can't come to that conclusion. As far as zoos go, this is pretty progressive and there's a lot of money here. And I've seen some appalling zoos, especially when you go to other, other states, other countries. So I, I recognize that this is as ideal as zoo situations get. Um, however, still, I recognize that I'm not seeing the animal its behavior is constricted by the mere fact that it's contained and has its meals provided. But you're thankful just to have that encounter. Stephen Sanderson acknowledges that there are perhaps some animals that the zoos of tomorrow really shouldn't be keeping at all. I think there are some animals that really challenge us in their exhibition and in, in maintaining a captive collection. So a few years ago we decided that even though we have had a hundred-year history of very successful elephant exhibits. We decided not to continue our elephant exhibits beyond the current collection. So that may well push us into 30 years from now before we actually don't have elephants here. But we found that on several grounds it was just more valuable for us to invest in elephant conservation in the wild and more complicated for us to provide for what we now know are the requirements of elephants in our parks with our wherewithal. But for us, every time we acquire or de-access a collection, we have to say, what are we doing for conservation? Yet it remains that people are forever fascinated with seeing the world's diversity of creatures. But in captivity, individual animals are inevitably compromised to some extent. How can this be justified? Bronx Zoo's Bob Cook. Well, I reconcile it in a number of ways. One is they are ambassadors for their species. 
More than 50% of humanity now lives in urban areas and will never have the opportunity to connect with wildlife in their native habitats. That's what we do. We connect people to wild nature, and by so doing, they hopefully take actions that will not only protect wildlife, but also ensure a future for humanity. But also, we are, in a sense, an ark. There are species now that only live in zoos. There are species that are being reintroduced into the wild, critically important to maintain that complex web of life in order for biodiversity to survive. So those things together, for me, reconcile that question of individual needs versus the needs of species. That was an episode from the ABC Vaults, and you heard the voice of Lynn Malcolm with production from Andrew Luck Baker from the BBC, and Louis Mitchell as the sound engineer. This was originally aired on The Science Show in 2010. I'm Ann Jones, and this is Off Track, and I've got an absolute beauty of a program for you next week. It involves fish farts. So, yeah, I'll definitely be taking you somewhere else. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio, and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.